Well, if you were here with us at Highland yesterday, uh, you noticed that we took a break from our Ten Commandments series, and we spent some time talking about uh, the persecuted church. Yesterday was International Day for the persecuted church. And what's actually kind of cool timing is that when we planned out our series in Young Adults for this fall, the text that we were supposed to talk about tonight was also all about persecution, a little bit of a theme. So you notice there's some of the magazines that were here yesterday. Those are on your tables uh, for you as well if you didn't grab one yesterday. But today uh, and tonight, we're going to talk a little bit more about the persecuted church. I want to start with an account from Open Doors USA. It's a Christian organization that works uh, predominantly with the persecuted church around the world. And here's how they describe what it's like to be a Christian in North Korea. Being discovered as a Christian is a death sentence in North Korea. If you're not killed instantly, then you'll be taken to a labor camp as a political criminal. These inhumane prisons have horrific conditions and few believers make it out alive. Everyone in your family is going to share the same punishment. Kim Jong-un is reported to have expanded the system of prison camps in which an estimated 50 to 70,000 Christians are currently imprisoned. 50 to 70,000. Most Christians are unable to meet with other believers and have to keep their faith entirely hidden. There are even stories of husbands and wives not knowing for many years that their spouse was also a Christian. Secret police carry out raids to identify Christians and children are encouraged to tell their teachers about any sign of faith in their parents' home. A Christian is never safe. You ever feel like we have it just a little easy. Man, when was the last time that you were denied anything because you're a Christian? When was the last time that you were beaten because you claimed the name of Christ? When was the last time you were thrown in prison? When was the last time that you received a death threat because you're a Christian? I think all of us, most of us would answer never to those questions, right? Here in America, we've had an unparalleled experience of peace as Christians that really hasn't been experienced for this long throughout history. And as we look at scripture, we see Christ followers, worshipers of God being persecuted all throughout scripture. I mean, think, think of the Old Testament. Think about the prophets, for example, men who interpreted the blessings and the curses from Deuteronomy and preached it to a culture that was spiraling out of control. What happened to the prophets? Well, think of Elijah and Elisha. I mean, how many times did they run for their life from Jezebel and her posse? Or Elijah, who lived by the brook Kidron for up to three years, being fed by a raven that brought him food because the entire world wanted him dead. Uh, what about Daniel? Yeah, he was tossed into a den of lions. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Yeah, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. How about Zechariah? Remember that account from 2 Chronicles 24? He was stoned to death right outside the temple. Or Jeremiah, history tells us that he was also stoned to death. Or Isaiah, history tells us that he was sawed in half. That would not be my preferred way to go out. No, it wouldn't. And then we can fast forward to the New Testament. We think of Peter and Paul, John the Baptist. I mean, we could go on and on for hours about the persecution that some of these individuals, some of these men, some of these women of faith have experienced. 
And then we can fast forward to modern history, right? I think of the missionaries in recent memory that have experienced great persecution for their faith. Think of Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and the three other men who faced death while trying to bring the message of the gospel to the Harani tribe in Ecuador in 1956. They found themselves staring down the shaft of a deadly spear with a pistol essentially within reach. And they said, we're not going to fire a deadly shot because we want these men, we want these women to come to know Christ. And they all gave up their life. And if you know the account, you know that Nate Saint's son, Steve, went to that same tribe as a missionary and a countless number of them have now professed faith in Christ. The dream of these men was realized, but they still gave up their life. Or maybe remember a more recent memory in 2015 when the 21 Coptic Egyptian Christians were beheaded in Libya. Remember seeing that all over international headlines? <laughs> and then I look in the mirror and I look at our experience. I look at my experience and think, man, I have it easy. Man, we have it easy compared to some of these heroes of the faith, I feel just a little bit like a wimp. We say things like, oh, I'm facing censorship on Facebook. I'm being persecuted. Or we say something like, oh yeah, man, that person left that nasty comment on my Facebook or Instagram. Man, I'm feeling persecuted. Or my employer told me that I can't, I can't keep inviting people to church. I'm being persecuted. Or, yeah, somebody took my Jesus 2020 sign out of my yard. I'm facing persecution. Or, you know, young adults is really interrupting my ability to watch Monday Night Football tonight. I'm facing persecution. Right? If, if those things are the worst type of persecution that you and I have felt because we're Christians, there's not too much to complain about, is there? But as we look at scripture, as we look at our text tonight, we'll see that persecution is the norm for a follower of Christ. So what's my problem? Am I doing something wrong? Or are we just experiencing a, a time of unusual peace? Well, because we're experiencing peace in our world as Christians today, our, our text is going to allow us to ask four questions of ourselves to look in the mirror at our own hearts in a time of peace. But before we ask those questions, let's look at our text. We're going to be in John 15 tonight. John 15, 18 to 25, and then we'll look at a couple verses in chapter 16 as well. As we're progressing through the upper room discourse, this is Jesus' last charge, his last words to his disciples. And I don't find these verses to be the most encouraging. Follow along with me as I read verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours. But all these things they'll do on account of my name because they don't know him who sent me. And if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I'd not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they've seen and hated both me and my father. The word that's written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. 
Well, you notice verse 20, don't you? Jesus is quoting himself from chapter 13. In chapter 13, he said, a servant is not greater than his master. And Jesus uses that logic in 13 to encourage his disciples that as Jesus washed his disciples' feet, as he did the the dirtiest, the lowest job, then the disciples have to wash not just Jesus' feet, but wash one another's feet. They've got to be willing to sacrifice and serve for one another. A servant's not greater than his master. But Jesus uses that same logic in a way that is a little less encouraging. He says, a servant's not greater than their master, if they persecute the master, if they hate the master, then they're going to hate the servant as well. And the world hated Jesus with such an intense hatred that within 24 hours, where do we find Jesus? On the cross. They murdered him on a criminal's cross. Jesus is saying that the disciples' commitment to himself would not exclude the possibility of the same fate. But I would ask, But why would anybody hate Jesus? The miracle worker? (laughs) The teacher? Why would they hate Jesus? I think of one reason. Sin exposure. When Jesus came, he turned on the lights in the religious leaders' hearts. He turns on the lights in our heart, exposing the sin and the gross and the filth that gives each one of us a choice Are we going to allow Jesus to come in and and do that work of transformation, growing us to look more like him? Or are we just going to get angry and throw a fit that he turned the lights on in the first place? And when we look at the New Testament, we see both responses to Jesus, don't we? We see some people responding with great excitement, with great humility, saying, I need forgiveness, I need reconciliation. And then we see other people saying, I don't want any of this Jesus guy. Because the gospel starts with bad news. We're sinful from the core of our being. And our sin separates us from a holy God. That from our own sin, we've earned eternity separated from God in a literal lake of fire. That's not happy news. That's offensive news. That's where the gospel starts. And the text tells us that the world hated Jesus if we identify with Christ, if we're connected to Christ, if we're abiding in Christ, If we're preaching the same message as Christ, then we can expect to be hated too. But that word hate is kind of trendy in our world today, isn't it? I don't think I've ever heard the word hate so much. I don't think I've ever heard so many people speak with hate and so many people accused of hate all in the same sentence. And I hope we're not adding to the noise. You know, when we say, you know, Christians are going to be hated, we might be hated by the world. That's true, but we have to ensure that we're hated for the right reason. If the world hates you because of your allegiance to a certain political position, that is not the hatred that Jesus is talking about. If the world hates you because you're using the Bible as a sledgehammer, that's not the type of hatred that Jesus is talking about. If the world hates you because you have a position that's all truth and no love or or have this attitude of, I'm right and everyone else is wrong, no humility. That's not the type of persecution that Jesus is talking about. If you're facing hatred because you're a Facebook warrior, that's not the type of hatred that Jesus is talking about. When was the last time anybody's opinion has ever been changed in an incendiary Facebook comment? Well, I searched the entire metaverse and I didn't find one example 
to steal Fritz's words from a number of weeks ago, don't be a jerk for Jesus. That if the world's going to hate us, got to make sure that they hate us for the right reason. That we hold the truth in a way that's, and present the truth in a way that's loving. Truth and love, not truth without love. But when we embrace Christ, when we follow Christ, when we're connected to Christ, we can expect the same sort of rejection that Jesus faced. The same spirit of rebellion that rejected Jesus will also reject his followers. Look at chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, as Jesus continues along the same theme. He tells his disciples something insightful. He says, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour's coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. And they'll do these things to you because they've not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, when their time comes, you may remember that I told them to you. You see what Jesus does? It's ingenious. He gives the disciples the why. He, he lets them kind of behind the curtain and gives them a picture of, of why he's telling them these things. Because Jesus preaches an anti-prosperity gospel. You know the prosperity gospel, that it's a false gospel that when you believe in Jesus, Jesus gives you whatever you want. Gives you the car, the house, the job, the health, the popularity, everything you could want. Jesus is going to make you happy. That's the prosperity gospel. It's all around our world today. It's one of the most dangerous threats to the true gospel of genuine Christianity. But is that what Jesus does in this text? No. He tells his disciples, I'm telling you these things so that when you're persecuted, when you face opposition, you're not going to be surprised. You're not going to fall away. You can expect opposition by being my follower. Life is not going to be easy. He doesn't try to sell him a, a bill of goods, does he? I chuckle a little bit when I, I see some of the advertising campaigns for different branches of our military, of our armed forces. The army right now has an advertising campaign called, What's Your Warrior? And you could go on YouTube, watch their three-minute video, and it has these, these overtones of adventure and heroism and belonging and, and travel and purpose. Now, if someone signs up to be in the military, could all of those things happen? Well, absolutely. But what is the video leaving out? The possibility of the ultimate sacrifice of four years or more away from your family? unwanted orders from the top, a lack of control over what you want to do, where, where you want to go. I'm thankful that when an individual signs up to serve in our military, I think they know what they're getting themselves into, at least mostly. And as we approach Veterans Day this week, like if you or one of your family members has served in the military, I am profoundly grateful for the sacrifice you and they have made to continue to protect the freedoms that God's given us in our country. Now, certainly not all of us understand what it's like to be in the military, but we're all part of God's family. And Jesus doesn't sell us a bill of goods. He doesn't have this fluffy advertising campaign. He says, if you're going to follow me, you realize you could suffer the same exact fate that I did. Jesus warns his disciples of what's coming. And, you know, I think of Peter, the guy who's <laughs> going to deny Jesus in just a couple of hours. 
But then he repents, Jesus restores him, and he's the, the foundation, the bedrock of the early church. Decades later, you can tell that, G, that Peter remembered these words of Jesus when he writes his letter of 1 Peter. Because these words sound a little bit familiar. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Doesn't that sound a little bit familiar? I mean, Peter's saying, guys, don't be surprised when you face trials. But he gives us a little bit of insight on the value of suffering. He says, rejoice, not for your suffering. He said, rejoice in your suffering. Why? Well, we see it throughout the book of Acts that when the disciples suffered for Jesus, that in a way that you can't even express it, it deepened their connection to their Savior in incredible ways. That when we suffer for Christ, we come to know Jesus in, in deeper and in deeper ways. That's what we see in this text. But look again at John 16, verse 2. It says, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. Well, when we think of, when we hear that verse, we should immediately think of Stephen, right? The first martyr. The religious leaders and Saul, who be, uh, who's later called Paul, they thought that they were offering a service to God by murdering Stephen. But when we hear that verse, whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God, that might bring up a little more of a recent memory, right? Think of individuals who flew planes into the World Trade Centers in New York 20 years ago, out of service to Allah. Religious persecution is the strongest persecution. Our secular worldview doesn't have an explanation for that. The Christian worldview does. And we might understand that type of persecution globally. We might understand it theoretically, but do we understand that locally? No. We don't. And when we look at brothers and sisters all around the world suffering in places like North Korea, China, Sudan, and Afghanistan, and Iraq, we look at the picture that Jesus paints, the picture that Paul paints or Peter paints compared to the suffering, I think we have it pretty easy. <laughs> For us to complain about social ostracization or Facebook censorship or the stripping away of some liberties. That's pretty arbitrary compared to what we see in history or around the world. We live in a time of peace. So am I to blame? Are you to blame? Are we doing something wrong? Well, here's four questions for us to consider as we walk through a time of peace. Here's our first. Do I look like Jesus or the world? Do I look like Jesus or the world? Jesus warns his disciples that if they persecute me, they, they're going to persecute you. That if we look like Jesus, if we resemble Jesus, if we reflect Jesus, then, then the chance we'll be persecuted like he was. But if we look like the world, if we resemble the world, then the world's not going to persecute us. It's the, the theme that Paul picks up in Romans 12, verse 2. He says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed 
by the renewal of your mind. What are we being transformed into? Into the image of Christ. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed into the image of Christ. And what does it mean to be conformed to the world? Well, Paul tells us a verse later in verse 3. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Well, what's that in one word? It's pride, isn't it? The pattern of this world is pride. It's selfishness. It's a Sam-centered universe where everything revolves around me. If you want to look like the world, live a selfish life. Put yourself at the center and you will fit right in. But if we're going to follow the way of Jesus, if we're going to be connected to Christ, then who's the center? Well, he's the center. I'm not the center. He's the center. And we're not going to fit in with the world. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us to hunt for persecution, to look for persecution. He tells us in verse 15, what's the recipe? Abide, remain, stay connected to Christ. But when we're connected, the chance that we can expect persecution. And when Jesus is at the center, then we're going to grow in our boldness. We're going to grow in our courage. We're going to be less afraid of what other people think of us. And that boldness comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. This boldness comes when we have a deepening and abiding connection to Christ, growing daily in our love for him. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Do you see somebody that's growing to look more and more like Jesus? Or do you see somebody that's growing to look more and more like your Instagram? Or more and more like your favorite Netflix series? What do you see? prayer is that we're growing to look more like Jesus. Here's our second question. Do I live in a Jesus bubble? Do I live in a Jesus bubble? Is it possible that we're not facing persecution because we live in a Christian bubble? (laughs) Possibly. I think more and more recently, I'm, I'm hearing Christ followers advocate for the Christian commune approach. Maybe you've heard of it, where we we step back, we kind of establish our own society, our own commune, really, to protect and preserve the faith. Now, is it important for us to preserve the faith? <laughs> Absolutely. And I can guarantee that our family in particular is going to be very careful about who and what we allow to influence Matthias. But that doesn't mean that we're going to live in a Christian bubble. Because we have a task, we have a purpose. Think of Matthew 28, where Jesus tells his disciples, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. How can we make disciples if the only people that we're spending time around are disciples? Doesn't work. We've got to be rubbing shoulders with people that don't know Christ. But imagine how easy it is to live in a Christian bubble. Go to church on a Sunday morning, come to young adults on a Monday night. All your friends are Christians. And you know, we can even do Walmart pickup so we don't have to talk to a cashier anymore, right? And a lot of us are working virtually. So the meaningful interactions with coworkers are, are gone. Think of how easy it is to live in a Christian bubble. Now, I don't want to be prescriptive on how this needs to look in our life. I know some individuals who live in a Christian environment but work very hard to, to spend time uh, interacting with other, Christ- or other people who don't know Jesus to, to share their faith. Think of a number of you that came down tonight from Nicolay Bible Institute. Right? This is a year of your life where you have an opportunity to grow in your relationship with Jesus to prepare you for what's to come in the future, right? 
But then at the same time, I know other individuals who spend 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week in the world, rubbing shoulders with the world without spending a single minute trying to point anybody to Jesus. So I'm not gonna be prescriptive on how this needs to look in our life tonight. Instead, there's a prayer we've gotta pray this week. Sounds like this. Father, bring people into my life that need the gospel. And then give me the boldness to tell them about Jesus. Father, bring people into my life that need the gospel. Give me the boldness to tell them about Jesus. Is it possible we live in a Christian bubble? The first two questions are important, but I think it's possible that we could be abiding in Christ. We could be conformed to his image and we could be living on mission in the world, but at the same time still living in relative peace. It's just possible that you and I are living in a, a period of church history that is peaceful. And if that's true in our life, then we need to make sure that we have the right perspective as we think of persecution. That's our third question. Do I have a perspective of vacation or preparation? Do I have a perspective of vacation or preparation? I'm convinced that one of the tactics that the enemy uses to make the church in America ineffective is prosperity and peace. We easily spend more time arguing about church and politics and vaccines than we do advancing the cause of Christ in the world because it's peaceful. We feel like we don't have too much to worry about. Let me give you a word picture that might give us a helpful perspective. Two words, beach vacation. Now, it didn't sound that good today when it was 68 degrees, but the rest of the week, that'll sound really good. Uh, Exactly. That's why I want to go to the beach. I mean, think of what we do at a beach vacation. You throw a frisbee, play volleyball, work on a suntan, fall asleep in the sun, go swimming, right? Those are all good things, nothing wrong with them. I've got two other words. Boot camp. I haven't experienced it. Some of you have. Is that a vacation, Olgan? No. Boot camp is not a vacation. But are you at war? not at war. It's a time of preparation. It's a time of training, preparing for battle so that when the enemy comes, when the war happens, that you're prepared. As we think of Christianity, as we think of our relationship with Jesus, as we think about persecution that could come down the road, maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's next year, maybe it's the next decade, do we have an attitude of vacation or do we have an attitude of preparation? I don't know how much longer Christianity in America is going to be somewhat mainstream. <laughs> it seems to be going in the decline direction, but what do I know? I think the day is coming when being a, a Christ follower in our culture is going to be more and more challenging. The day is coming when that persecution could be a reality in our life. We need to prepare. Otherwise, we're going to get lulled to sleep. And then the enemy's going to catch us off guard and we're going to lose the battle. I mean, that's a battle tactic that's been used for as long as humans have been around, right? I think of 1776, George Washington. It was Christmas Day. And I'm sure his soldiers weren't very thrilled, but 2,400 of his Continental Army, right as the sun set on Christmas Day night, they crossed the Delaware River, ice cold. And then they hiked all night in freezing rain along the bank of the Delaware River all the way to Trenton, New Jersey. They were frozen. 
But in Trenton, there were a thousand mercenaries, Hessians. They were hired German soldiers. And Washington knew that those soldiers were not going to be expecting a battle, an invasion the day after Christmas. And he was right. It was the easiest victory in, of Washington's entire career because they were basically all nursing hangovers from the day before. The mercenaries made a fatal mistake. They fell asleep. We can't make the same mistake. And Peter warns us a little bit later in 1 Peter where he says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's not a very pretty picture of our spiritual enemy, is it? Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. We can't become spiritually intoxicated. We can't fall asleep at our post. We have to prepare for spiritual battle. We have to prepare for the persecution that could come down the road. Because peace for a Christian is the exception, not the standard. So how do we prepare for persecution? We've got three ideas. Not original. Here's the first. It comes from John 15. is to abide. We've got to stay connected to Christ. We've got to be a good light bulb. We've got to stay plugged in to our source of electricity. That's what we've been talking about through this whole series. But one way we can abide is through prayer. I've been reading this little book on prayer by a guy named E.M. Bounds, who passed away a little over 100 years ago. I just want to read you what I read the other night. The men who've most fully imitated Christ in their character, who've most powerfully affected the world for him, have been men who spent so much time with God as to make it a notable feature of their lives. Charles Simeon, the English revivalist, devoted the hours from four to eight in the morning to God. John Wesley spent two hours a day in prayer. He began at four in the morning. One who knew him well wrote, quote, he thought prayer to be more his business than anything else. And I've seen him come out of the closet with a serenity of face next to shining, end quote. John Fletcher, an English clergyman and author, stained the walls of his room by the breath of his prayers. Sometimes he'd pray all night, always frequently and with great earnestness. His whole life was a life of prayer. Quote, I would not rise from my seat, he said, without lifting my heart to God, end quote. His greeting to a friend was always, do I meet you praying? Martin Luther said, if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. I have so much business, I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. He had a motto, he that has prayed well has studied well. Gulp. Man, that like hit me like a ton of bricks. When was the last time you woke up at 4 a.m. to spend two hours or four hours in prayer? That was not me this morning. I look at these men, some of whom are hearers of the faith. Their priority was talking to God in prayer. And how often do we find just about anything else to prioritize over prayer? Netflix, <laughs> scrolling through Instagram, watching football. I mean, anything. And we throw up a, a couple conversations, a couple thoughts throughout our day, and we get through our day and we think, man, I've hardly talked to God. 
one of the best ways we can stay connected to Christ, one of the best ways that we can be prepared for the persecution that's to come is by prioritizing prayer. I had one of you ask me last week, I don't know how to pray. How do I pray? (laughs) That'd be a great conversation for your small group leader tonight. If that's a question that you have, I'd encourage you to ask that in your small group. So that's one way we can prepare. Here's the second. We need each other. Jesus said, abide at the beginning of John 15. And then what do you say in John 15, 12 to 17? Love one another, sacrifice for each other. Just as I've loved you, love one another. Facing persecution is not a solo battle. This is a team, a family affair that we get to face the persecution that's coming together, which means we've got to build trust now so that when we find ourselves in the trenches together, we already have that trust. We already have that relationship built with each other. Look around your table tonight. Look around your small group tonight. Who can you prioritize getting to know on a spiritual level that you can be encouragement, encouraging to each other? Here's a third way. We need to hear stories from brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering for their faith. So I'll share one tonight. Account of a man named Reg Reamer. I bet you haven't heard of him. He's a missionary in Vietnam and is with his family starting in 19. 19- 66. You remember your history in the country of Vietnam. Just over eight years later, the country fell to communism. And Reg, as a foreign national, along with his family, the mission agency pulled him out of Vietnam and sent him to nearby Thailand, where he would be working with refugees who were coming out of Vietnam and serving them and ministering to them. So he had an idea of kind of what was happening in Vietnam, but he didn't have a full picture until 1980, five years later. He's reading through the newspaper in Thailand, and he sees this advertisement. A first tourist trip to the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. First tour. And you know what he did. He signed up. And there was not a single tourist on the tour. There were eight people. There was somebody from the Red Cross, somebody from the CIA, a journalist, and there was Reg, a missionary. But when he got to the country, he wasn't prepared for what he saw. It had only been five years. All the Vietnamese ethnic minority pastors were imprisoned. The churches were disbanded. Many of the ethnic Vietnamese Christians were persecuted, and they were imprisoned. Many people stopped gathering for public worship. The smaller denominations were absorbed by the government-regulated, government-observed church, the Evangelical Church of Vietnam South. And on his first Sunday back in the country, he did what you'd expect him to do, he found his way to church and he went to the government regulated church, a big evangelical church. And he walked in the door and he saw a lot of faces that he knew, a lot of friends, a lot of brothers and sisters that he'd served alongside and served with. Not one of them acknowledged him because they knew they were being watched. So he managed to exchange notes with the pastor during communion. And the pastor was able to get him a note back. It was a man that he knew well. And the note said, tonight at dusk, come to the side of the church building. There'll be an old lady looking for you. She'll direct you to an upper room. Come meet us there. So he followed the instructions. That night at dusk, he very discreetly makes his way to the upper room. The lady helps him find his way. And he walks in to see four pastors, four friends that he'd served alongside. You can imagine that was a pretty tearful reunion. And after they hug and they cry, they begin telling him what was going on in the country. 
Stories of leaders in prison, many of whom had passed away. Stories of persecution and suffering all throughout the country. Believers who didn't have a shepherd, they were living in fear. And after listening to their stories, Reg asked the question that would have been on all of our minds. What do I do? What do you want me to do? When the president of the evangelical church in Vietnam responded by saying, please raise our voice in the world. We cannot speak for ourselves. It reminds me of what Hebrews 13.3 says, where the author of Hebrews writes this. Remember those who are in prison, presumably for their faith, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are the body. Remember those who are in prison. Do you see a, a geographical restriction in that verse? No. We have brothers and sisters, between 50 to 70,000, probably more, in North Korea that are sitting in a dark prison cell for their faith. And we live in North Central Wisconsin. You know, everything's fine. It's good. We dig our head in the sand. We kind of pretend like everything's okay. And what's happening in those countries, ah, it doesn't affect me. So I really don't have to care about it. Those are brothers and sisters with the same Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters that we're going to be together with for all of eternity. Brothers and sisters that we have the opportunity to support. And it starts with prayer. That's our last question. Do I pray for the persecuted church? Do I pray for the persecuted church? It's one of the great benefits of a day like yesterday is to take time just to think about those around the world that are suffering for their faith. If you didn't grab one of those magazines yesterday, the ones on the middle of your table, make sure to grab one tonight. I read through the three stories that are in the magazine last week. They are so good. And just a great perspective on what God's doing around the world. Uh, and maybe you could use that to supplement some of your time in personal devos this week. Or maybe if you're married, you and your spouse could read a story before you go to bed uh, a couple nights this week. Just a great way to think globally, to think outside the walls of young adults, outside the walls of central Wisconsin, to think through what God is doing around the world. There's other ways for us to, to be aware of what's happening around the world. Maybe we can subscribe to uh, the Voice of the Martyrs newsletter or their email updates. Or if you're on Instagram, at least redeem the time by following an organization like Voice of the Martyrs or, or Open Doors USA that actually uh, posts stories of what's happening to Christ followers around the globe. Those are ways that we can be aware of what God's up to around the world? Do we pray for the persecuted church? Maybe that's something we can even do this week. In those magazines, there's a bookmark, kind of hidden, but it's in there, that has 10 ways that we can pray. Maybe that's we can, something we can do each day this week, to pray for those 10 things for our brothers and sisters around the world. Because if we're faithful to pray, if we're faithful to support, if we're faithful to advocate for those around the world that are suffering for their faith, just imagine how sweet that reunion is going to be in eternity when we can put a name and a face together with the brothers and sisters that we prayed for, not even knowing who they were, to hear their stories of how God allowed them to be faithful and courageous and have perseverance through persecution, that someday we'll get to stand hand in hand with them 
and we'll get to sing next to those brothers and sisters that I'll feel like a wimp next to and hear them sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The one who was and is and is to come. That's gonna be a cool day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, the peace that you've afforded to us and our context is a gift. But maybe a gift that we don't take for granted. Allow us to resist the temptation to dig our head in the sand and just ignore uh, the plight of brothers and sisters around the world. May we have a global family mentality of partnering with uh, these friends that we, we don't even know yet, partnering with them through prayer, through raising awareness of, of what's going on in other countries. Father, may we be faithful to support them through prayer. And just a couple things come to mind that we can pray for for the persecuted church tonight. May they sense your presence. May they know that we're praying for them. May they experience your comfort. May you open doors for evangelism. May they boldly share the gospel. May they grow in their maturity and their faith. May they have wisdom in their ministry work. Give them joy in the midst of their suffering. Give them a posture of forgiveness and love towards those who are persecuting them. And may they stay rooted in your word. And may those things be true for us as well. In Jesus' name, amen.